Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Healthier Podcast. I'm your host, Rena Jadhav on a mission to help you live the healthiest and happiest you've ever lived before. 2020 is a brand spanking new year, and I've got an amazing guest and a book interview today for you. So the book is called The Switch. Ta-da! It is Ignite Your Metabolism with Intermittent Fasting, Protein Cycling, and Keto. But I'll tell you what, the title does not do it justice. The Switch, in my perspective, having read the book, is truly at the heart of helping us understand how the body works so that we can make smarter decisions about the information coming at us. After all, we've all heard keto is good, keto is bad. Intermittent fasting is great, not for women. Protein cycling, what the heck's that anyway? Well, we're gonna find out. We're gonna talk to James Clement in just a few moments. So James has a fascinating history. He is not a traditional MD scientist that I typically have on as my guest. He's actually an entrepreneur turned research scientist who has focused on the science of lifespan and longevity. And he's written this book. He's uh, very famous for having done the supercentenarian uh, research study that he did with another scientist from Harvard Medical School. He's now based in Florida, Gainesville. He's got a lab where he's busy trying to find the next molecule that's going to help us live a very, very long life disease-free, which is the key. Now, here are some things that famous people have to say uh, about this book. Now, some of these people you'll recognize because I've hosted them on my own show. David Sinclair is one. And if you haven't heard David Sinclair, check it out. It was an incredible interview. This is what David says. I was blown away by this book. James Clement has produced the best book I've read on fasting and autophagy. Definitely worth the read. And I said, as I said before, if you're curious about the truth about fasting and or completely confused about what's the right time to do fasting, when should I eat, how should I eat, this is going to be a great interview for you to listen into or watch. Uh, David Perlmutter, um, New York Times bestselling author, MD, this is what he has to say. The switch will undoubtedly rewrite your health destiny. Wow. Of course, this is only if you implement what you listen today. So hopefully you'll not only listen to this, but you'll implement a lot of what he's proposing, if not all of it. Uh, Mark Hyman, all of our favorite functional medicine doc out there. James Clement is a rare trailblazer in scientific circles. This is a must read. All right, let's get on with the interview. First question, why did you write the book and why the switch? What is the switch for those who haven't read the book? Sure. Um, for the last 20 years, I've really been focusing uh, my own work on longevity science, the biology of aging. And one of the interventions that is probably the most well-documented uh, health span and lifespan increasing um, thing that, that uh, can be done in organisms or, or humans is called calorie restriction. And there's some variations of it. Protein restriction has been done in animal models. Um, certainly lots of um, 
experiments recently in fasting, prolonged fasting and intermittent fasting, and uh, a growing interest in the ketogenic diet. So back in 2013, knowing this, I decided to try and figure out if there was one mechanism of action, that is what these uh, different nutritional um, practices were doing in cells and whether uh, this was going to be additive. So for example, could you restrict your calories by 20%, restrict your proteins in a certain way, fast uh, frequently, and take certain uh, anti-aging drugs? Would all those things be additive? And you'd get like this tremendous health increase and dramatic longevity, or are they simply working in the same pathway and um, uh, they would, in a sense, cancel each other out to some degree. So uh, over the course of about a year, I read about 2,000 scientific papers just in this one area. And um, what I basically discovered was that there was a, a metabolic switch um, referred to as mTOR, which we can get into later, um, but that this switch was uh, involved in nearly every single disability that occurs with old age and with every life extension uh, therapy uh, that we knew about from various anti-cancer nutraceuticals to uh, uh, many different types of drugs, as well as practices involving um, longevity ex um, practiced all over the world by different peoples. Actually dive right into mTOR because you mentioned that that is the switch. Um, I love the simplicity of the way you explained it. You know, your switch is either on or off. If it's on, you're growing, which is great at a certain age, right? When you're young, you want to grow. Uh, when it's off, you're cleaning, you're repairing. And so after a certain age, uh, you don't want to be growing. <laughs> you don't want to age too fast. You want to be cleaning and repairing. I love that simplicity. Um, however, let's dive into the details of what is the switch? How do you find it? How does the Easter Island have anything to do with this? Because that's your chapter one. That's right. Um, it, it is actually a really interesting story as to how this uh, molecule inside our cells was discovered. And it happened uh, because of a drug that was found. And it was found in the soil uh, of uh, an island called Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island. That's the one that has those monolithic statues on it that you might have seen. Um, and Canadian researchers went there, took soil samples, and discovered a bacteria that made a antimicrobial substance, which they named after the island, so it was called rapamycin. And they noted that it had all kinds of interesting properties. So it slowed cell growth. And among the types of cells that it slowed growth and sometimes completely inhibited the growth were cancer cells. So the NIH got uh, very interested in this compound as well. And a lot of uh, effort and money was put into discovering how is this working. And um, I detail in the book um, very briefly uh, the fact that someone uh, looking at what went on with using an electron microscope actually found this complex um, and the complex which had never been before been known inside cells they named after this drug so it was called the target of rapamycin tor 
And um, because it was discovered in bacteria, this was a very simple complex. But when they started looking for it in vertebrates and then later mammals, um, they found that it was much more of a complex um, uh, set of pathways and, uh, and proteins. And so they changed the name first to mammalian target of rapamycin. And then when they discovered it was in all vertebrates, not just from mammals, they changed it to mechanistic target of rapamycin. But it's commonly uh, called mTOR. And um, so uh, without having discovered mTOR, which really came about in the 1990s, um, this knowledge about how this switch operates and how it um, switches between two states of the cell, an anabolic state and a catabolic state, this would never have been known. And one of the interesting things is when you read a lot about nutrition, and a lot of people like to talk about the McGovern hearings and um, you know how our modern food pyramid you know, came about, um, all of this research was done in the 70s. So they had absolutely no knowledge about this metabolic switch. And I think that's very telling when it comes to what kind of suggestions have been made over the numerous decades since that time. And it's exciting that there's over uh, 1,300 clinical trials for use of rapamycin for things like Crohn's, which is starting to become an epidemic, to other degenerative diseases. So it's exciting um, possibilities that I think we have in the next coming years um, where rapamycin might be able to be used as a potential drug. Uh, going back to why does rapamycin work, you say that it works primarily because it initiates autophagy. So let's talk about that. What is, what is autophagy and why do we want it? Sure. So uh, mTOR was essentially a survival mechanism that evolved in bacteria. Uh, all organisms need nutrients and nature doesn't provide nutrients on an even basis. So uh, sometimes you have feast and sometimes you have famine. And the bacteria that had this tor mechanism were able to stop um, making so many proteins and stop cell division and basically to hunker down during famine and to get some of their resources from inside their own cells. And it was through a process called autophagy and this process, uh, I described metaphorically, uh, as little garbage trucks inside your cell that go around and selectively pick out really bad things. Um, so misfolded proteins and organelles like your mitochondria, which produce power for your cells. And um, your, your cells are full of hundreds, if not thousands, of mitochondria. And some of them are dysfunctional. And so it, it, it takes those and it brings them to something called the lysosome, which is basically like a big recycling center. It's full of enzymes and, and acid, and um, these little dump trucks dump their load into it, and it dissolves them back into their basic constituents, some of which is waste, and some of which are amino acids that get um, uh, put back into the cell to make as uh, proteins. So this mechanism, uh, allow those bacteria to uh, out-survive all of the bacteria that didn't have TOR. And all plants and all animals uh, evolved having this complex. 
And what I believe is that uh, the more long-lived uh, mammal um, organisms, uh, and certainly us, uh, uh, made use of this complex in our longevity. So this getting rid of misfolded proteins and high free radical producing mitochondria is an essential part of our health and longevity. And um, as I'll talk about later in the book, um, this goes completely awry in modern society. And that's why you talk about, and, and this is chapter two, by the way. So in chapter two, you talk pretty significantly about how to induce autophagy, because clearly you've demonstrated up until then how critical it is and how it's linked to decreasing inflammation, preventing cancers. In fact, um, to quote you, uh, why cancers and neurological diseases have increased dramatically during the 25th century. I mean, you're, you're even claiming that poor autophagy, which in some sense comes from the fact that we became a snacking society with very easy access to limitless food that clearly was not nutritionally very strong um, is one of the reasons why we've ended up with these degenerative diseases is because we just were not giving our bodies the, the time that it needs and the nutrition it needs or the deprivation of nutrition to allow it to do this cleansing process. So let's dive into, all right, tell us, James, how do we create autophagy? What are the, what are the key things that we need to do? So this mTOR metabolic switch, which switches between anabolism or the anabolic state, uh, which is uh, by scientists referred to as the fed state, mm -hmm. um, it switches between that and the non-fed or nutrient-deprived state uh, in which catabolism, this catabolic state, is turned on and autophagy is upregulated meaning that it's uh, turned on as well, and it goes into this process of clearing bad things out. In this pathway are what are referred to as nutrient sensors, and uh, they're fed into another protein complex called AMPK, and um, those nutrients include the amount of insulin that you have in your bloodstream, and insulin is primarily regulated by the amount of, of, of glucose you have. Um, so carbohydrates have a huge impact on whether this one sensor that tells mTOR whether or not it should be off or on um, is in one state or the other. Uh, other sensors include uh, branched chain amino acids. So if you have proteins like leucine, isoleucine, or valine, those will also tell mTOR that it's okay to make more cells, to grow, and stay in this anabolic state. And the final major um, sensor is simply oxygen. Uh, the cell needs to respire. Um, it's part of how we make energy through the mitochondria is with oxygen. And so if you're in a hypoxic state, uh, mTOR gets turned off also. And I talk about that in a later chapter as well. And specifically, what are the dietary recommendations? Because you talk about high fat, high fiber, low carb, and minimal protein. And we're going to talk about that at length because I don't know if you've gone to a grocery store lately and seen sort of aisles upon aisles of protein bars and protein shakes and protein smoothies. And now we've got protein water, by the way. 
Um, so it seems like very contrary to uh, what's being sold to us, which is, hey, you need more protein. You're arguing that, in fact, it's, the, it's quite the opposite. Protein will activate your mTOR, and you don't want that. Talk a little bit about that. Certainly. And, and this is actually one of the main reasons why I wanted to write the book was because once you learn about mTOR and what turns on mTOR, um, specifically uh, high blood sugar levels plus certain amino acids, then no matter what you hear in terms of someone's marketing or maybe another diet book or, a, or, or another science book in which they focus on one particular thing. So um, it's, it's easy to sort of get misled. We could talk about sarcopenia which is basically the loss, loss of muscle mass. And it's easy to say, elderly people don't get enough protein, therefore, why don't you start young and keep your protein levels really high all the time, and you won't have, or you'll lower your risk of sarcopenia. That sounds totally logical, except if you know about the switch, then what you're realizing is, okay, I'm gonna keep the switch in this growth state forever. I'm never turning on repair mechanisms, and that can't, be, that can't be good for me. So unfortunately, it's in the interest of a lot of companies to sell a product. And they look for, you know, what's the best way to sell a protein bar? Well, it's to tell people that you need protein and you need more than you think you're getting. And therefore to, you know, encourage you uh, to buy their product. But unfortunately, this is not how we evolve. Uh, we, we evolved. Uh, humans in particular, to go through many feasts and famines, um, certainly not to have a refrigerator full of high energy foods that we could go to and a reason to stay up, you know, whether it's nighttime television or, uh, you know, the fact that many of us work all night now, um, that um, you, you could essentially eat well past dark all the way up to bed and then wake up the next morning and do the very same thing. Uh, and so learning about this feast and famine and whether or not you should be eating protein, uh, how much sugar is good for you, um, how does this all work? Um, this was one of the main uh, reasons for writing this particular part of the book. And, and I do delve into things like um, glycogen, which mm -hmm. is the way your body stores uh, glucose. So uh, the liver and your muscle hold most of the glycogen, and those levels of glycogen in the body basically tell the body whether or not to produce insulin, and then that level of insulin is one of the main things that controls mTOR and what state it's going to be in. You also talk about the importance of exercise for autophagy. What kind of exercise, how much? Talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, certainly there's lots of reasons to exercise, uh, having nothing to do with just an anabolic versus catabolic state. But what we do find is that one of the triggers for turning on catabolism is lower energy levels. And a great way on a daily basis of lowering your energy level is through healthy exercise. So you get lots of additional benefits but by using up your glycogen stores, by doing, um, going to the gym and doing a treadmill or going out for a run or doing some heavy weightlifting, 
is that this helps deplete your glycogen stores so that when you stop eating in the evening and begin to fast, you don't go into the evening with completely full reserves so that you can make it all the way to the next morning uh, and your next meal without ever dipping into this catabolic state. You want to go um, into the evening with depleted reserves so that overnight your body switches into this catabolic state. And this is, this is definitely how people evolve. And I, and I do talk about that quite a bit. So in chapter three, you know, you talk about dwarfs and mutants, but really the, in essence, you're trying to educate us about uh, IGF-1 and its critical importance and the body's built-in anti-aging molecule. So tell everybody, what is IGF-1 and why should we care about it? IGF-1 is um, uh, a molecule that is a signaling molecule. It's very associated with insulin. It's called insulin-like growth factor. And it, um, it helps regulate the body's anabolic state. Uh, this determination of, as to whether or not is going beyond, uh, primarily influenced by insulin itself, not just IGF-1, is through uh, a receptor that measures both insulin levels and IGF-1 levels. And some of the really interesting tie-ins to why keeping mTOR turned down at times um, could be really important to health is illustrated by people who have loss of function mutations in this IGF-1 area. So it could either be that they produce less IGF-1 or their receptor is impaired so that um, no matter how much they signal, it just doesn't send this on to the mTOR side. Um, so Laurent syndrome people uh, basically suffer from this uh, impaired receptor. Um, they have plenty of growth hormone, but they still uh, don't advance beyond uh, dwarf um, stage. And yet they are completely impervious to diabetes and cancer they have much lower levels of heart disease and Alzheimer's. And um, unfortunately, for other reasons, um, uh, they don't necessarily have longer lifespan than we have, but it's primarily tied into other lifestyle uh, habits of theirs. Um, but we also see this um, uh, in nature with miniatures. So we've learned now that it's a single gene mutation that makes the difference between a full-size dog like a Doberman pincer and its miniature pincer um, uh, cousin. And yet we see that uh, the Doberman lives about nine years on average and a miniature pincer can live 12, 13, 14 years or more. And this is true in um, uh, all the, the dwarf or miniature versions uh, that we found. Many mice uh, for scientific laboratory purposes have been bred as dwarfs and they all have extraordinarily longer lifespans and health spans than the full size version. Um, I went around and collected blood samples from people who were 110 years and older uh, for a number of years um, working with uh, Professor George Church at Harvard Medical School. And one of the things that I noticed about these people who I met in person was that very few of the women were over five foot two. Uh, many of them, like 
you know, just barely five foot, uh, many of the men were very diminutive as well. So I think that this loss of function mutations, which have now been found in the genetics of both centenarians and supercentenarians, also shows us how important keeping your IGF-1 levels uh, low is to regulating the switch in the uh, anabolic and catabolic state. Absolutely. Moving on to chapter four, uh, which I thought was a fascinating chapter because you give us insights into how to decrease our calorie count. Uh, Okinawans, monks, and seven-day Adventists, kind of your core message there is we're eating too many calories. We've really all got to cut down how many calories we eat. And my question is, how do you decide how much calorie is the right calorie amount for someone given how varied we are as humans, we have different lifestyles. So help us understand, first of all, you know, where does the science come from for lower caloric intake, but also how does someone listening to this or watching this figure out what that looks like for us? Sure. So um, a Cornell professor named Clyde McKay in um, the 1930s did the first experiments uh, on rats, I believe, um, where he restricted their calories by about 20% of what they would eat if just allowed to eat as much as they want. And he found a fairly dramatic increase in health span, meaning that you know, they didn't uh, um, succumb to uh, diseases of aging as they got older, uh, but also just uh, median lifespan increased as well. And lots and lots of studies have followed since the 1930s they varied it in many ways. They've, uh, they've restricted uh, different proteins, seeing what about cutting calories is actually doing this. Because you know, one possibility is just you turn the cell's metabolism down by cutting calories, and that's why people live longer. And what they found was you can actually ratchet up the calories by double like under a ketogenic diet, you could go from 2,000 to 4,000 calories, and you would still get the health span benefits, which was a really interesting finding. And that led to the discovery that it's actually proteins um, that were being reduced. And so calorie restriction is a very simple way. You just across the board cut your calories, but mainly you have to cut the proteins. And in fact, there's an organization called the Calorie Restriction Society, and a group of those members had been doing something um, called Crone, where they tried to optimize their nutrition and actually increase the protein activity um, intake um, while they were restricting their calories. And Walter Longo and other people tested them and, and discovered that they weren't actually getting the full benefits of calorie restriction by uh, supplementing with protein and increasing their protein levels in an effort they thought to be more healthy, they were actually turning off the switch. So um, there's been a lot of evidence to show that, that um, cutting calories is one way of doing it, cutting protein is another way of doing it, um, uh, reducing your glycogen stores uh, and exercising and reducing your energy levels before bedtime is, a, is another great way of turning on this switch. So what I really like to focus on is that it's all about the different ways of turning off and on the switch. 
It's not that you have to do calorie restriction or that you have to uh, become a vegan, that you can't eat meat anymore, uh, but simply that when you want mTOR turned off and you want this repair turned on, you need to pick something that does that and follow that practice. And I think that's where each of us is different and it's a question of figuring out what works for you best. So trying different mechanisms and saying, hey, you know, Maybe someone enjoys caloric restriction, someone else prefers intermittent fasting, someone else doesn't even care if their protein goes down to negligible. So, it's, you know, I always say try and find something that works for you long term, because again, a big part of your message is this isn't a fad short term thing. This is a lifestyle. You're adopting, in essence, a brand new lifestyle because your program talks about sort of an annual based program. You know, so guys, this is not a 10-day, 14-day, 3-day program. This is truly a new way of thinking of your body, your health, and how you want to live to 100 without disease. Because again, n- none of us wants to live to 100 with disease. Uh, but if we could live to 100 plus without disease, now that's, that's exciting. I want to talk about something that I was, I was real surprised. I've done uh, at this point about 112 interviews, and I didn't know this, that uh, protein stimulates insulin release. You know, we were always told it's carbs that are linked to insulin. And um, you make a fact that actually protein does the exact same thing. And so I had to go in and clean out my, uh, my pantry <laughs> and throw out the variety of protein uh, wrapped food products that, that I had purchased um, based on some of the other uh, works that I had read or, or listened to. Uh, in addition to that, I, I loved some of your examples on caloric restriction, James. Uh, I'm going to share two because they were so surprising and so easy to do. I thought, hey, you know, let's, if, if this is something that our viewers can do very easily and um, get rid of some calories, why not? So one of them was the fact that um, uh, slow down when you eat, uh, you'll consume 300 fewer calories per meal according to a study in the Journal of American Dietetic uh, Association. So that's about 500 calories in a day just from slowing down. Now, I know the, the pace of life that all of us lead, um, slowing down may be hard, but it may be worth it. So making some time and um, really putting down sort of, what do you say? When you say slowing down, taking an hour to eat a meal, what does that translate into? It's basically giving your body time to send feedback signals to you, telling you that you satiated your hunger. Because if you eat really fast, um, your body reacts to that very slowly. So you'll overconsume more often than not simply because you're not getting that signal yet from your brain saying, I've eaten enough. Right, right. The second one that I thought was so critical, and of course my kids are going to hear about this, put away your phone. And the data is, it's again a study by the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. People who looked at their phone during lunch, not even were on the phone, apparently didn't remember their meal as well, felt less full, and snacked to the tune of 200 more calories per day. So checking out your phone, just looking at your phone during lunch, may cause you to eat 200 more calories. What a simple, easy way to um, get those calorie levels down. And I think your uh, proposal is figure out how to get 500, about 500 or so calories 
out of your daily meal. Um, and these are two very simple tips, you know, slow down your eating, maybe say a little prayer right before you start to take up some more time. Don't rush into work right away. Just take a couple of minutes to settle in. And second of all, don't look at your phone. So those are some wonderful tips. There's a lot more tips, by the way, working out before breakfast. Uh, you've got a lot of other great tips. So for those of you interested, definitely go ahead and check out the book. Um, I'm going to delete some of this stuff. Let's talk about dairy. You've got a whole section. You, you've got angst against milk and dairy. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, you know, if you think about it, um, so one of the things I discovered when I was looking at this molecular switch and the fact that it was turned on primarily by one branch chain amino acid named leucine um, was that leucine is found in all breast milk. And it makes sense that uh, you would want a baby to grow and to grow quickly. Uh, in the case of uh, human breast milk, versus cow's breast milk though, um, they have four times the level of leucine. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, you know, um, when, when we look at paleo history, when we look at, at um, uh, uh, peoples around the, the planet that still live a, a very uh, uh, ancestral lifestyle, we see women carrying their children around um, for four or five years after they're born. And in fact, they usually don't have a second child um, later uh, than those who, who don't carry their children around. And uh, cows uh, obviously can't protect their children. They have, to, they have to grow quickly and be able to keep up with the herd, be able to move quickly into the center of the herd if they're attacked by a predator. And so it really makes sense that um, calves would have much more of this uh, anabolic uh, growth-oriented branch-chain uh, amino acid than humans. And yet, what do humans do? Uh, we drink milk our entire lives. Um, whether it's a glass of milk uh, at the table or ice cream uh, or dairy that's in, found in lots of food, including those protein bars probably, um, is that you know we're probably the only animal on earth that consumes breast milk after we've reached you know puberty so uh it does seem a little a little odd it, it's a great way of turning on mTOR and knowing that it's turned on so i'm actually a fan myself of of uh taking um uh hmb which is a metabolite of leucine or taking um Whey protein, leucine is this, uh, this one particular branch chain amino acid. It's found primarily in dairy. Uh, and so it's concentrated in cheese. And if you eat a lot of hard cheeses, especially, then you're always going to have mTOR turned on, even if your glycogen levels are low, because this one branch chain amino acid can sort of override things and tell the cell, you know, it's okay to make more copies of yourself We've got lots of amino acids. Talk about protein cycling, because we haven't actually had you define that yet. And, and in some sense, that's, again, something that you've been a big proponent of is protein cycling. What is it? So one of the ways to very easily uh, cycle mTOR between these two states of anabolism and 
catabolism is to vary your protein intake. So you can reduce it down um, quite dramatically uh, and plant uh, material has much, much lower levels of leucine. So if, for example, you want to go very low protein, then just switch to an all plant diet for you know, days or weeks or however you want to inhibit uh, mTOR. And, it, and when you want it back on, then it's uh, good to um, consume a lot more proteins. Um, and you can do this with, plant, with plants, but you'd have, to, you'd have to focus on high protein value uh, foods like, like grains um, and uh, 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 legumes like, like uh, you know, beans and, and other high protein um, nuts and things like that. So the, um, the, the way to turn it off and on uh, through protein uh, cycling is a very simple mechanism for um, turning this back one way or the other. Next chapter, which is chapter five, where you talk about epileptic children and world-class cyclists, you get into ketogenics. And of course, uh, there is a lot of information out there about keto and on the very top of that is that it's a meat-centric diet. Um, you know, a lot of the old recipes talked about chicken and bacon, and that's not what you're talking about. So first, um, tell us about what have you learned about keto, and then let's dive into the type of keto that you recommend. Absolutely. So again, um, it, it's entirely possible to have a very healthy ketogenic um, lifestyle and to both turn on autophagy and turn it back off and, and go into the growth state um, all, the, all the while that you're doing keto. But you have to have enough glycogen to do this and you have to have enough protein uh, to do this um, during the uh, anabolic state and you have to be able to limit that protein uh, when you want to go into the catabolic state. So I see lots of discussions about the paleo diet where they simply talk about um, eating lots of meat and then for the people that are used to desserts and, you know, sort of can't live without it, you see tons of recipes for, you know, pies made with almond flour and honey and uh, all kinds of things which uh, could obviously keep mTOR turned on just as easily as using sugar instead of honey. The fact that it was available to the Paleolithic man doesn't really prevent the switch from being turned on. So one of my points of talking about the ketogenic diet is that it's really useful. Um, and I think it's an absolutely great uh, weight loss tool because uh, as long as your glycogen stores are full, which you get when you're on a high carbohydrate diet, um, or at least a high, high glycemic carbohydrate diet, then uh, you never burn fat because part of this switch to the catabolic state is that you tell your cells uh, to start burning fat and to start saving glucose, um, which it'll do in the liver and muscles and try and replenish those, um, those stores that it has. Um, but if you're trying to lose weight, you really need to be able to turn this switch into the catabolic state or else you'll only ever grow fat, you'll never burn it. And um, obviously there's lots of good reasons to want to burn fat 
it's actually more efficient than the mitochondria, produces less free radicals, uh, which means it's less immunogenic, cause less cancer, etc. It's one of the reasons why being on a, a keto diet seems to be very beneficial as an anti-tumorgenic uh, uh, lifestyle. And it fits into your basic switch theory, which is your switch is either on or off. And so the ketogenic diet, in essence, is really switching off the growth and switching on the cleansing um, by reusing all the stores that are, that are excess. There's all that excess sugar and fat that's sitting around your body is getting consumed and used up. So again, logically, I think um, I love how this book really simplified, in my mind at least, the equation of why keto, or as we're now going to talk about paleo. So your next chapter, uh, you talk about paleo, you introduce paleo and the hunter-gatherer, which is the caveman and industrialist, your chapter six. So um, again, paleo, lots of different books, lots of different perspectives, some good, some clearly incorrect, according to you. So talk a little bit about what is truly paleo and why are you so against farming? <laughs> um, so uh, at times it does sound like I'm against most things, but what I'm really focused on is teaching people how to turn off and turn on this switch on a cyclic basis because you need it on sometimes, you need to grow muscle, you need to repair your organs, um, your stem cell growth, is regulated by this very same switch, so is your immune system. So it needs to be on from time to time, but you also have to repair your cells, and that requires the catabolic side of the switch being on from time to time. So uh, again, looking at um, paleolithic nutrition, um, there's lots of evidence uh, now that really there is no one paleolithic diet. It sort of depended on uh, what group of people you were studying, where they were located. Um, you know, if you look at Northern Europe, well, paleolithically, they were in an ice age for 20,000 years. So, of course, they're not going to be a group of people that were primarily living off of vegetation. They were killing um, giant mammals of uh, uh, the types that are now extinct because of those activities. Uh, there were woolly rhinos in the UK. Uh, giant sloths and mammoths in, in, um, on the continent, and uh, those all disappeared during the Ice Age, and it's primarily believed that uh, humans, you know, led to their demise by eating them. And, um, and so it depends. If you look at caves in France, uh, you'll find lots of evidence of eating uh, primarily uh, animals for nutrition. If you go to other places of the world, Africa, Middle East, etc., then you see that they were primarily eating tubers and uh, grasses and other uh, plant material, as much as 70 or 80% of their calories coming from that and only a small amount from um, uh, wildlife. So uh, I think one of the things to learn um, and to differentiate between what's paleo and what's not is to think about how much agriculture has changed just in the last 150 years. And so I did a lot of reading about the change on the industrial side. So the switch from stone mills to iron mills and how um, you know, everyone loved white flour. 
and that became the predominant um, flour that was shipped all over the world by industrialized uh, uh, companies. So um, um, if you look at uh, um, the levels of consumption of flour and sugar, and uh, Lustig for one has done a, a fantastic job of um, you know, showing how dramatically sugar went up from you know, a pound a year to over 100 pounds a year per person in consumption over a 100-year period. You look at all of these changes, refrigeration, for example, um, allowed for us to preserve uh, fruits, uh, plants, uh, dairy, things like that, that you wouldn't have found in abundance before the invention of refrigeration. Also, the fact that you, we could now grow things in all parts of the world, refrigerate or freeze it, and ship it to other parts of the world. So we lost this uh, inherited lifestyle of seasonally eating different things. And um, uh, again, um, if you look at Paleolithic man, there was probably very little incentive to stay up late after dark. Uh, you certainly didn't want to be outside uh, the uh, area that you lived and walking around at night because uh, predators are very good at night scene and humans are not. And so um, this invention of uh, um, whale oil uh, used to light lanterns and then later electricity uh, to light our homes, street lights, etc. It basically made for 24 hours a day uh, a person could be up and active and relatively safe. Um, and so we see lots of our lifestyle affected by modernity. And um, this idea that things are becoming more and more industrialized. And I also talk about um, uh, livestock. I grew up on a farm. It was my, my grandfather's farm. My, my parents were uh, not farmers. But, um, you know, I saw uh, pasture-fed cows and pasture-fed hogs. And he had a chicken coop, which was mostly... Um, the fact that they could go out in the daytime and pick around uh, this enormous uh, farm and at night they'd, they'd scoot back to the coop and, and roost and lay their eggs. Um, but now we have these giant CAFOs, uh, concentrated animal farming operations, where multitudes of thousands of cows or pigs or chickens are raised in um, very small lots or buildings and sometimes even without light and um, uh, fed uh, mostly high omega-6 uh, oil-based grains to fatten them up and basically the practices uh, for all of these animals is to intentionally give them diabetes because diabetes helps makes people obese and so if you want an animal to put on a lot of weight you make them obese and you make them diabetic. Um, so we're eating very different foods than people ate even 150 years ago. So I, I try to go through all of these changes and to explore um, why paleo in a broad sense is really the way we, we should be eating and that we can't let these modern conveniences uh, disturb this switch the way it has. Let's talk about the problem with sugar, as you call it, and let's actually clear out some confusion. Um, we have a lot of 
people calling it in or messaging us and saying, should I be eating fruit? I shouldn't be eating fruit. Should I be eating honey? Isn't that sugar? But what about fructose? I heard fructose is really bad as well. Um, versus, of course, you know, there, no one will argue with, with you that, okay, table sugar is bad. So we know processed sugar is bad. But what about jaggery? So talk a little bit about what has your research led you to conclude about sugar? And again, what percentage of sugar do we need to take in our diets in order to put the switch off? When I really started diving into mTOR and this switch and realizing that uh, glucose levels affected insulin levels, which thus turned off and on this switch, I started taking my blood sugar every day. Um, so first thing upon waking, I bought one of these inexpensive blood glucose monitors. And uh, uh, over the course of seeing what was happening with my fasting, I took more and more. So for probably two years straight, I took maybe five to 10 um, uh, glucose tests a day because I was really curious about what is it that's causing my uh, fasting glucose to be so different day to day. And then I saw that some of the things that I was snacking on or some of the things that I was drinking were really dramatically affecting my blood sugar. And, Can you um, give an example it, of a couple of those? Sure. Um, so I, uh, I decided, you know, I, um, I, I had cut out sugar in general, like table sugar, from uh, my diet years before um, for various health reasons. But I was using sugar substitutes. But if you notice, a lot of sugar substitutes utilize something called maltodextrin as a filler. Because, you know, if you were just looking at sacralose or, or uh, asperitine or something like that, it would be uh, like stevia, for example. Uh, only the tip of a, of a uh, matchstick um, is enough to sweeten a beverage. But, you know, people like to use teaspoons and tablespoons to measure things out. So they add a filler called maltodextrin. So I started um, measuring uh, before and after consuming uh, a drink that had like Splenda or, or Asperitine or Stevia or something, but also had maltodextrin. And I noticed that every single time there was maltodextrin in it, my blood sugar would actually spike after doing this. And, you know, if uh, you're somebody that works at a computer or like myself, you know, they're reading scientific papers all day long, um, you know, it's very easy to just drink a lot of um, um, these artificially sweetened beverages and thinking, well, look, there's practically zero calories, so this couldn't be affecting me. And yet it was, it was triggering this one sensor of mTOR and keeping mTOR turned on. So um, uh, this was uh, really eye-opening to me, and um, it, it was one of the things that I wanted to convey. Unfortunately, as we all know, biology is just incredibly complex, and I think nutrition has got to be one of the most complex health topics that we can talk about. And it's, uh, it's easy to focus on one particular thing, and I did not want this book to sort of go off in every possible direction. Um, certainly many very brilliant people have written about uh, sugar and different fats, whether it's omega-6 and omega-3, omega-9, et cetera. 
Um, so I didn't want to, you know, duplicate all this fine work that all these other people have done, um, but I wanted to bring their work into the relevance of mTOR especially. So I do talk about um, um, normal sucrose, sucrose, which includes uh, uh, glucose uh, and its effect on turning on the switch, and basically saying, you know, the easiest thing to do for yourself is get a blood sugar monitor. Right. And if you're seeing in the morning that your blood sugar is, let's say, above 90, then chances are you didn't burn through your glycogen stores overnight the way you were hoping you were. And so something in your diet is raising your levels higher than it should be. Um, so there's lots of ways to approach this. Uh, I prefer um, res time restricting your diet, and we talk about that in the intermittent fasting chapter. James, what about fruits? Which fruits do you like? Of course, uh, berries are non-debatable, so everybody approves of berries. But what about the rest of the fruits, like oranges, apples, pineapples, mangoes? Do those turn on the switch? Um, so most of these uh, common fruits, whether it be oranges or bananas, etc., are almost completely man-made in the sense that selective breeding over the course of a hundred years has changed them so much that if you if you walk through a museum and notice still lights that were done in the 17 and 1800s and you look at a bowl of fruit it practically looks unrecognizable you're not sure is that an orange or an apple or like what are these balls that are in this these, you know this bowl you are absolutely right. Um, the fruits of today have nothing in common with the heirloom fruits and vegetables, by the way, while we're at it. You know, you look at an heirloom tomato versus a tomato of today, and there's just not that much in common. So please continue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, um, in order to, you know, sell more products, um, the best strains of most of these fruits and vegetables are the ones that are sweeter. Um, so they have more fructose uh, and um, they have uh, been overgrown usually where they're being grown. So they lack as, uh, the kind of uh, nutrients that the soil would have carried, um, you know, in, in a more paleolithic time. So um, personally, I again think that uh, it depends on your personal health. I think there's certainly lots of nutrients that are still available in, um, in uh, fruits. Uh, if, if you focus more on organic, you'll probably get more out of it than if you go with the non-organic mass-produced fruits. Um, I prefer personally berries. And so I like to have a wide variety of berries um, in my diet. I have noticed uh, through years of practice that if I'm careful and I don't overconsume berries, it really has a negligible effect on my blood sugar levels. So if I want to be turning in toward down and turning up uh, autophagy, uh, having a half cup or, or more of berries, um, especially earlier in the day when I need more energy, doesn't really affect me. Um, but I, I generally don't uh, consume fruit. But, but I think I'm more probably insulin sensitive um, than um, other people. And, um, you know, I would just simply 
uh, have higher and higher levels of insulin and higher and higher levels of, of glucose in my bloodstream if I eat what an average person ate in terms of like uh, fruit. And I, I would recommend everyone stay away from concentrated fruit, meaning apple juice, orange juice, um, other juices that, that lack all the fiber and basically have concentrated more of the sugar than anything else. Absolutely. All right, in your next chapter, um, cutely labeled walnuts and corn-fed cows, you primarily dive into sort of the truth about fat. So what is the, the truth about eating fat for losing fat, fat to prevent Alzheimer's, dementia? And what I want to get into after that, of course, is um, cholesterol and people that have high um, cholesterol or heart issues. What do they do with your recommendation of eat more fat? Well, uh, studying longevity and um, chronic inflammation, which is a major problem in elderly people, um, one of the things I learned was a large source of inflammation is from these pro-inflammatory uh, omega-6 oils. And um, again, when we study what do you find in primitive people that live a more ancestral or paleolithic type lifestyle, it's that their omega-6 to um, anti-inflammatory omega-3 levels were much more aligned than they are now. So they were somewhere between four to one and one to one. And it, you know, it depends on what part of the world and whether or not they were primarily eating uh, fish, uh, shellfish. Uh, if they were primarily eating fish and uh, shellfish uh, as a way of boosting their omega-3s. Um, but uh, what we find now is that around uh, 1909, the levels of omega-6 to omega-3 were about 5 to 1. And in 1999, they were approximately 10 to 1. And now uh, it's estimated that they're closer to 20 to 1. Um, so the amount of omega-6 in our diet, which is a very pro-inflammatory uh, uh, fat in our body, uh, this is just skyrocketed in just less than 100 years. So uh, I wanted to bring this to the attention because if you're going to follow a ketogenic lifestyle, whether this is just temporarily to turn on uh, autophagy or whether this is uh, more long-term, so for example, to uh, reduce your BMI to a healthy level, then I want people to know that, that um, there are healthier oils that they should be following. And the uh, title, including walnuts, was uh, when I started delving into omega-6, I was absolutely uh, shocked and appalled by how much omega-6 there is per gram uh, in some of the nuts that I was enjoying. So uh, walnuts in particular, which you know, have been touted for having lots of uh, selenium and other nutrients that uh, appear to be beneficial, um, they're extremely high in omega-6. Now, if you were substituting um, something really bad, like trans fats or um, um, high saturated fatty acids uh, and you have a particular um, blood type or, or genetic type that makes that bad for you, 
um, then I think that substituting nuts, even high omega-6 nuts, for even worse oils, trans fats and, and uh, saturated fats, is probably going to work out for you. Um, but there are healthy nuts, ones that have far lower um, omega-6 levels, and one of my favorites is the macadamia nut. And it's actually, I, I absolutely love macadamia nut. It's just unfortunate how high calorie it is, but oh, it is, it is a good nut. Well, if you want to be on a ketogenic diet and you want to have primarily healthy monounsaturated fats, then you can practically live off of macadamia nuts. Um, they're full of nutrients. Um, their oils are very uh, uh, benign in terms of causing inflammation and um, very low levels of saturated fat as well. So for those who are sensitive to saturated fat and dramatically raises their cholesterol, they don't have to worry so much about this with, uh, with macadamia nuts. So it's been a primary tool for me to, if I just want to go keto, um, I just substitute some of my uh, calories with macadamia nuts, and it's a super easy way and to me fairly delicious way of, um, of jumping into a, a, a keto lifestyle. So do you do raw, sprouted, soaked, roasted? How do you take your macadamia nuts? I, I vary back and forth between raw and roasted, but not salted. Um, one of the things in studying um, primitive, so-called primitive people and uh, people that follow a sort of close to nature, close to the earth uh, lifestyle uh, is that they have incredibly uh, low levels of hypertension. And one of the things that's been linked to that is that they have extraordinarily low levels of salt in their diet because they're not adding salt to anything. So I've basically um, switched to eating whole natural foods uh, and not pre-prepared foods that um, the manufacturer has added salt to it. And so when I have uh, nuts, whether I'm having uh, uh, seeds, um, like sunflower seeds or uh, pumpkin seeds or uh, almonds or macadamia nuts. I usually go for the roasted or raw, but totally unsalted. And it took a little bit of getting used to, but now the full flavor of the nut comes out and I'm not really um, eating it for the salt flavor. And uh, I think I'm actually enjoying it a lot more. What about the conversation around uh, phytates and anti-nutrients and nuts that have not been sprouted? Where do you come out on that? Um, so I've, I've, I've looked into this with, with um, lectins, um, with, with various uh, pro-inflammatory proteins that are, that are found elsewhere, uh, these crystals that are in many plant foods. And I, I, I think that uh, educating yourself about these and um, uh, learning the tricks of how to avoid them or supplements to take that uh, obviate uh, the adversity in them. Uh, our friend Joe Marcola has recently written uh, some really interesting material on this, uh, and I'm following some of his recommendations. But basically, one of the things I do is I'm a self-quantifier, so I take a lot of blood tests. One of the things I love looking at is C-reactive protein, which kind of gives you a baseline inflammation level. 
Um, it's turned on by pathogens, so it's also sort of an early warning system as to whether you got a bad infection, whether bacterial or viral. It was actually discovered as an early warning system to tuberculosis. Um, but uh, I use it to monitor my inflammation levels. And normally, I'm well below uh, 1.0. So I usually run between uh, 0.8 or 0.5. And wow. I noticed that when I cut out grains entirely, it went down to 0 0.2. Uh, but when I tried cutting out legumes, nothing happened. And when I eat legumes, it doesn't raise above that. So I think in my particular case, I'm seeing that it doesn't add any pro-inflammatory factors um, to my body. Um, so I, I prefer to keep the nutrient side going and it doesn't seem to cause indigestion. I, um, I've discussed on numerous occasions with uh, Dave Asprey about uh, fiber. Um, we've, we've sort of been chatting back and forth for years about how much fiber are you up to now? <laughs> we're almost both uh, exactly between 60 and 100 uh, grams of fiber a day. Wow, that's a lot of fiber. I'm assuming you're consuming that in some form of a supplement as well? Most of it is uh, supplemental, but I do, I do consume uh, about a pound of low glycemic vegetables a day. And I can do this even while on keto and stay in keto. Um, because they're very low glycemic, like Brussels sprouts and cauliflower, asparagus, things like that. And um, uh, you can get a moderate level of uh, fiber with that, but I've, um, I've looked at different uh, barks and other uh, sources of fiber. Uh, many of these are now put into products for leaky gut syndrome, and I'm a big fan of these types of, of fiber. Um, um, I think larch bark is, is one of them, uh, but inulin is, is a common one as well. Um, I do know that in some people, they've told me that inulin raises their blood sugar. And I've experimented around uh, myself and it hasn't raised mine. Uh, but I think what you might look for is whether or not the inulin, which primarily comes from um, Jerusalem artichokes, I believe, um, whether that's been in a sense, adulterated. You know, right. did they put other things into it? Um, and often, I think those are the things that's actually increasing your blood sugar, not the fiber itself. Um, but fiber makes really healthy fatty acids. So your gut bacteria in your lower colon uh, make butyrates from this, and that's something that heals uh, leaky gut syndrome and is generally good for the brain. Butyrates. Uh, um, are involved in ketone production. So um, I'm a big fan of, of consuming lots of fiber. And of course, if you do this, your chance of getting colon cancer is going to be like dramatically lower as well. What about psyllium husk? I, uh, I like making food, uh, you know, uh, low glycemic muffins and things like that with psyllium husk. Again, there's some people that say that um, they're they get very bad indigestion. It makes their gut hurt. I don't know whether this is something they might get used to if they worked up to it, and right. maybe they just jumped into it too much. But um, uh, I think uh, I think it's something that you have to um, see how your body 
adapts to and then uh, included or try some of the other um, um, uh, fiber types um, just to raise your level and see what works for you. Absolutely. All right, the best chapter of them all, the last one, uh, finger pricks and grocery lists. All right, let's dive into your recommendations for living to a very, very long, healthy life, disease-free. Well, one of the things that um, kind of surprised me when I started doing clinical trials uh, with uh, various physicians uh, and talking to their patients, and often the patients volunteering for these clinical trials because they had age-related ailments that they wanted to resolve and they just wanted to live longer and healthier was that very few of them um, ever got their blood tests done. So they would say, uh, well, once a year I go to the doctor and he gets me a blood test. And I say, um, well, do you know what your uh, blood glucose levels are? Uh, well, my doctor said they were okay. Well, do you, do you know what that means? Like, do you, do you trust that they were an optimal? Like, if you really want to live long and you, and you want to avoid certain kinds of maladies, and, and especially if you want to regulate this switch, you really need to know what your blood sugar levels are. And so they would say no. And often I would just say like, okay, uh, come in tomorrow. Uh, morning and we'll, we'll give you a free blood test and we'll see what your levels are and often it would be over 100 and sometimes it would be over 110 or 120 and so they would actually be pre-diabetic or, or completely wow. type 2 diabetic and not realize this because the one day that they are going to go get their blood test they do exactly what the doctor says which is they stop eating at six o'clock and they don't have you know breakfast so that they can come into the office at eight or nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and then take their blood test, fasting. And I try and explain to them, this is actually what you wanna do on a daily basis. This is how you should, you should be eating. And if you measure yourself more, you'll find lots of other things that aren't exactly optimal, whether it might be your insulin levels, which again, help regulate this particular switch or your cholesterol levels or, um, your C-reactive um, uh, protein levels, which show your inflammation, your immune levels, which you get from the CBC part of your blood test. So there's a wealth of information in that. And I would really urge people to get a full blood test at least twice a year and to really look at um, your normal lifestyle and to, to, to try to discover whether these blood tests really represent your normal lifestyle or whether you're doing something special for these blood tests that you go to the doctor with. I also learned, James, from my own personal experience, that these tests have ranges. And just because you happen to be in the range doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal. I also found that some of these ranges are outdated. Do you have a simple cheat sheet of four being in this active switch turned off mode, what should certain numbers look like? So what should blood sugar look like? What should cholesterol look like? What should certain hormone like uh, panels look like? Well, uh, um, again, the, the focus of the book is primarily just to teach people about this switch so that they'll know how to regulate this in their lifestyle, whatever they choose to be, uh, a vegan, uh, a Western diet, paleo, etc. 
And you can regulate the switch in any of those diets as long as you know how it works. Um, but I do think that a very useful tool is, of course, blood glucose. And there's other things, not just um, keeping mTOR always in this growth stage and never burning fat. I think those are super important issues. But one of the things that high blood sugar also does is it glycates uh, the proteins that it comes in contact with. So if you want a quick example of what glycation is, look at a creme brulee. So there's this glassy, hard um, uh, topping on the custard, which is made by simply melting sugar. And this melted sugar is glycated. Well, when you put sugar into your bloodstream, it glycates proteins in your bloodstream, including the very blood vessels themselves. So they get hard, like the top of a creme brulee, they get brittle, they form cracks, and then bacteria and things work their way into these cracks, and you end up with, with atherosclerotic plaques and other ruptures and, and uh, heart disease. So AGEs, as it's called, advanced glycation end products, um, conveniently age, A-G-E, um, these are very detrimental to the body. And if you keep your blood sugar levels down, then um, your chance of developing bad AGE syndrome is going to be lower. So uh, one of the direct measurements of glycation, it's sort of an indirect measurement of your blood sugar over like a three-month period, is called your hemoglobin A1C. But actually what this test measures is glycated proteins, hemoglobin proteins in this case, in your bloodstream. So this is a very direct measure of how much have you been glycating your bloodstream. And if it's above 5.5, then you're definitely having glucose levels in your bloodstream that are too high for too long on a daily basis. And, uh, and so these tests are very important. Um, personally, I, I think um, cholesterol um, is uh, very interesting. Uh, there are viewpoints all over the map as to whether more, more cholesterol is beneficial or detrimental. Um, we see people who have mutations that have extraordinarily low uh, total cholesterol. Um, so it's a, a cholesterol receptor in the liver. Uh, and now there's drugs uh, that knock out this cholesterol receptor in the liver. Um, Rapatha is one of these drugs. And it will dramatically lower your cholesterol. But when you look at populations around the world that have these genetic mutations, and they have total cholesterol of maybe 20. So not, not 120, not two or 300, but double digits only. And you see, they not only are healthy, but, but there's almost no record of Alzheimer's or other dementia, which a lot of doctors have said, you know, cholesterol is found in the brain. It's necessary to make hormone. So if you reduce your cholesterol levels, your hormones are going to go crazy and you're not going to be able to, um, uh, uh, live without dementia, you don't see this in this group of normally uh, cholesterol deficient uh, individuals. So I think this area of 
what's the right amount of cholesterol is probably more governed by the size of the molecules, the particles, and um, how they're split among uh, the different subsects of, um, of uh, uh, lipoproteins and not specifically the total cholesterol number itself. Um, you know, I know lots of people who have had cholesterol levels of two to 300, no atherosclerosis whatsoever. And then people who have what would appear by most of the older standards, meaning that they had total cholesterol of maybe 120 and total cholesterol of 80 or 90, um, have uh, uh, severe enough atherosclerosis to have bypass surgery. So I think this is a difficult area. Uh, I don't know the answer to it. I actually have a clinical trial uh, in an area that's related to this that is exploring a completely different hypothesis, and I hope to be able to tell you about that in about a year. Um, but for now, um, uh, I, I think that the best thing is to sort of be safe and to keep your cholesterol within a uh, moderate range and do all these other healthy things. Because we certainly know that being diabetic, for example, being obese, dramatically increases your heart disease, even if your cholesterol is within the normal ranges. So I would get those things under control before um, getting really uh, obsessed about your cholesterol levels. And the first thing you recommend, of course, is intermittent fasting. You're a big fan of skipping breakfast and giving yourself sort of a 12-hour window. I think you talk about don't eat after 7 p.m. and then maybe your first meal is at 11 a.m. Um, that's doable, but you also talk about maybe fasting for three days. So what do you suggest as the ideal intermittent fasting schedule throughout the year? Um, I think this varies from person to person. So there's some caveats. Uh, um, young kids probably shouldn't uh, fast or, or do this intermittent fasting. Uh, if you're pregnant, you definitely shouldn't uh, um, be worried about mTOR at that period of time. You really want uh, all these uh, growth hormones and stuff being fed to your, your baby. Um, and if you have severe health problems, you should probably go to your doctor and tell them about what you think you want to do and make sure that um, they're in agreement that this is a healthy um, thing to try. Uh, but if you're um, uh, over 25 and uh, you're a moderately healthy person and concerned about longevity, I think that cutting your um, eating window down to about eight hours or six hours is a absolutely excellent step. And it's actually really easy to do. So there was a paper that just came out two days ago. Um, it was either published the last day of uh, 2019 or very early in 2020. Um, uh, Rafael de, de Cabal um, was the main author of the paper, and it was about intermittent fasting utilizing either a six-hour or eight-hour uh, eating window, and they showed really remarkable improvements in health in elderly people. And, um, and it's just not that hard to do. So, I'm doing it um, earlier in the day, so it wouldn't be the same if you were doing fasting from like, I don't know, 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. Really, the goal is to do it in the morning and not eat after 7 p.m. because you've 
done some clinical research that shows that um, the way our body processes uh, sugar and carbs, et cetera, is a lot more optimized during the day than it is during the evening hours, correct? That's right. Uh, both plants and animals are very geared towards cyclic uh, cycles based on the sun and the moon. And um, we have these daily rhythms. And so in um, humans' case, uh, you know, following this where you eat, um, say, around 11 o'clock in the morning and you stop eating around 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening, falls in perfectly with the normal kind of um, uh, cycles that, that uh, we evolved to, to experience and, and have been shown uh, over numerous studies to be very important to health and, and actually tied in quite strongly to uh, uh, cancer when they're dysregulated. All right, let's end with your the switch plan. And you talk, of course, uh, it's, it's a one-year plan that's ongoing for the rest of your life till you get to 117, which is, I think, the age of the last eldest person uh, that, uh, that we know of. So you talk about eight months and four months, right? So you're cleaning four months. You're, so talk a little bit about that, and then we'll go in deeper into your plan. Uh, so based on the fact that in, in most of the planet, humans were exposed to different seasons and had different nutritional abilities during that time. So for example, in the summer is when the grains would uh, ripen, fruit would ripen, uh, honey would be more prevalent because the bees would have been making it from the flowers. Um, this is a time when your body typically um, had these high energy carbohydrates available and you built up muscle, stem cells, your immune system, and fat reserves for the long winter that you were about to uh, endure. And in some places, the winter is basically a drought season. So even when it doesn't necessarily turn cold, in many parts of the world in the winter, they have a, you know, a long period of drought. And so things also become uh, restricted. So uh, based on how we evolved, um, I thought it was probably most appropriate that we try and follow that with our lifestyle. Various groups like the Mount Athos monks, which I talk about, um, they fast for about 50% of the time, 180 days out of the year. And it's a, it's a calorie-restricted type of fast. Um, like a Dr. Longo's fast. Yeah, very similar to that, rather than a, a water fast, for example. And they do do prolonged fasts as well. Um, so uh, I think that this can be incorporated in people's lifestyles uh, on, on an uh, annual or semi-annual basis also. But I, I do think that looking at this as wanting to pick one of these lifestyles, whether it's a paleo diet, a vegan diet, um, a uh, Mediterranean diet, etc., cetera, uh, even an Okinawan um, high plant uh, fish-based diet, I think you can, you can pick something that works for you and then follow that at least eight months out of the year. And then for three or four months out of the year, you can sort of uh, loosen up, um, eat more carbohydrates, um, you know, have sort of more feast uh, than normal. And, you know, if you want to work these time periods in, you could literally do it six days on, one day off, 
or you could do it um, four weeks on, one week off. I think there's lots of ways that you could cycle back and forth, but I think the majority of the time, maybe 80, uh, 80 20, or you know, eight months on, four months off, this sort of thing, that um, you should be in this catabolic autophagy um, uh, activating state overnight at least. And occasionally, maybe once or twice a year, uh, with autophagy turned on for three or four days in a row. And for that, you, you probably are gonna have to really restrict your proteins for that many days or, um, or just do a, a total fast for that many days. Got it. Now in your plan, in your food plan, you say healthy fats, and of course your favorite again, macadamia, avocado, MCT, olive, uh, 65 to 75% of the calories need to come from fat. And uh, then you've got the low glycemic vegetables, which is again, you say seven days a week, not an issue, that's 10 to 25%, which is Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, spinach, broccoli, squashes, vegetable proteins, um, not to exceed 10%. And that's hemp, pea, macadamia nuts, uh, vegan-only, fatty fish, dairy and meat. And then, of course, you go into alcohol, one to two drinks, uh, sweets, grains, legumes, starches, nuts, only during fall. What's up with that? Why during fall are you limiting us with the sweets, grains, legumes, starches, and nuts? So the, the sort of food pyramid that I made is really oriented um, towards this absolutely optimal diet based on what we've learned from these very long-lived healthy people. So there's been lots of studies, I think 30 or more studies done on Loma Linda vegans, um, entire programs of studies, um, the Okinawan Research Group, um, who have been studying the centenarians and supercentenarians in Okinawa now for many decades, um, and recent uh, work on centenarians in Italy, Greece, and Mount Athos in particular. So when we look at these groups, they follow this diet that I proposed in this food pyramid. And so really that is the basis for, if you just want to pick one thing and do it, uh, this would be very close to ideal. And, um, and again, you, you, you want to make sure you're cycling mTOR off and on. You can't just pick one particular thing and say, this is it, it's healthy, I'm going to do this the rest of my life, and have no variation in it. Variation is uh, how we evolve, and it's very important to turning the switch off and on. How do I know if my mTOR is turned on or off? Is there any quick and dirty back of the envelope test? We're, we're actually, um, so I have a laboratory of my own, an analytical laboratory primarily here in Gainesville, Florida. I just moved here from uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I've got several PhDs working with me. We have a uh, really uh, beautiful mass spectrometer from which we can measure uh, protein levels from blood and uh, intracellular levels of protein. So one of the things we're doing now is looking at mTORC. Um, one and two, those are the complexes that make up mTOR. And we're trying to develop whether or not there's an easy test to see whether mTOR is inhibited or activated. Um, right now, I think the best way uh, to know that you have it activated 
is to take lots of leucine and make sure that your glycogen stores are full. Uh, this is mTOR. If you want to know that autophagy is activated and mTOR is inhibited, then you want to severely reduce your animal proteins and uh, reduce your uh, high energy carbohydrates. And if your blood sugar in the morning is less than 90, um, chances are really good that you're now in this uh, catabolic state. So that's sort of the shortcut that we can use right now to know whether or not we're in or out of this switch. Got it. Got it. And you also, of course, uh, recommend three consecutive days of fasting every quarter. I can do a day of fasting. Three consecutive days is a lot. Are you saying water fasts or talk about the three consecutive days? What, what are the parameters? Um, I think a lot more research needs to go into this, but certainly the research that's been done primarily in these prolonged fasts um, do show that it's very beneficial. And um, I think that um, doing this at least a few times a year, it really turns on a deeper version of autophagy than you would get with simply the overnight fast. And again, thinking, thinking back to how we evolved, uh, humans didn't have um, constant food supplies, not until very recently. So it was probably quite common um, throughout human history to go even weeks, if not months, of very low calorie restrict uh, calorie availability, so very high amounts of restriction, or uh, just water alone, and um, and it's been shown to be very beneficial. Uh, people have done one year straight water fasts. Um, now you have to have a lot of uh, body fat to do that, but just to give you an example, and I talk about this in the book, um, your uh, a 20 BMI healthy 20 year old of 150 pounds. So that's, that's a very healthy person, a BMI of 20%. Um, this person would have about 135,000 calories worth of fat in their body. Right. So you could go 60 days without eating anything and, right. and burning thousands of calories a day just from the fat that you carry alone, around alone. Now you do also need proteins, and that's why um, I'm not recommending that people do really long extended uh, fasts without a doctor recommending it and supervising it, because you really need to make sure you're getting enough proteins so that your body doesn't basically break down all of your proteins um, uh, in order to continue to make your cells function properly. So. This won't happen in a short two or three day fast. Um, and that's why you can get the benefits of these deeper um, uh, autophagy uh, periods uh, by doing those fasts, but um, not risk uh, you know, any kind of detriment to your muscles and, and uh, uh, immune system and that sort of thing by, by keeping them turned off for so long. What about someone who's on the thinner side? What about someone with a BMI of, I don't know, 10? Do you recommend um, similar intermittent fasting and um, consecutive day water fasts for them too? And especially when it comes to women, what about hormones? Uh, any research on that? I, I think that, uh, again, uh, 
this is an area that has not really been explored, especially um, taking into consideration this metabolic switch. Um, but what I'd like to I, I'd like to suggest is that um, uh, you can take a higher calorie um, uh, lifestyle with following a ketogenic diet and still both uh, suppress mTOR and turn on autophagy and also upregulate mTOR and turn on this growth and rebuilding uh, process, uh, all while staying in a higher calorie, uh, moderate protein uh, diet. And so I would say that people who already are um, thin, maybe they're not uh, very muscular and don't want to lose any more muscle, um, first of all, they should probably talk to their doctor about you know, a proposal of doing something like this. But I think they'd want to look at, at um, the ketogenic diet as a way of keeping their calories up, not becoming um, um, uh, innervated and, and you know, have loss of energy, loss of muscle, uh, not have sufficient proteins to make their organs work correctly, lose hormones, et cetera. So, um, so I, would, I would caution people that you know, um, more of something is not always beneficial. You can't say, you know, uh, I heard James Clement say that fasting is turns on autophagy, so I'm going to do a water fast for the rest of my life. <laughs> not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that you need to cycle back and forth. You need to get the best health benefits out of having mTOR turned on and the best health benefits on having it suppressed and autophagy turned on. Fantastic. James, this has been so enlightening. Thank you so much for writing this book. Any single one piece of advice for someone who's listening and watching, and of course at this point feeling overwhelmed with all the information and saying, God, I got to rewind and listen to this all over again. What is the one thing that you want them to take away from, from our conversation, but also from the book that you've written? I think uh, understanding that uh, virtually all life that we know has this anabolic catabolic switch and that it is crucial to human health and longevity and that you need to know enough about it so that whether you're shopping in the grocery store or a friend is just telling you about the latest new diet craze, you can evaluate it with this knowledge and say, that might be interesting to try for a month, but I want mTOR turned on or I want autophagy turned on, and that diet won't work you know, to go in or out of those stages. And that's the one thing I want people to remember when they hear about something a year or two years from now, is sort of always to know about this one metabolic switch that they have to um, keep control of uh, and cycle back and forth. Fantastic. Thank you so much again. And for the rest of you, come to HealCircles.org, nonprofit completely committed to you and your health. Add free sponsor, free vendor, free manipulation, free. I hope we'll see you on HealCircles.org. James, thank you so much again. We'll see you hopefully soon when you finish writing your next book. Pleasure talking with you, Rena. Thanks so much. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.